0: They want this type of granular data on you. And so then they can say that this is what you are interested in. So that that advertisement that pops up on your screen can be perfectly designed to get you to click on it and not only to click on it, but to buy This program is made possible by the members and
1: donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial free versions of every episode and occasional members only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Humorless Queers, The Benjamin Dixon Show, The Laura Flanders Show, On the Media, Democracy Now!, and Intercepted.
2: I heard that the Senate passed this week um, a bill that basically gives Internet service providers the right to sell their customers data. Is that right? What happened? Like, can you
3: catch us up? Yeah. So just when you think that um, all of the horrific things that could possibly happen to your privacy have already happened, <laughs> there's a new horror. Um The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission under Obama, uh, promulgated some rules that were established in October of 2016 that were set to go into effect in December of this year, 2017. Um, And those rules basically said, if you're an internet service provider like Comcast or Time Warner, companies that provide uh, telecommunications service, um, give people internet at home or in their businesses... They have to provide people, their their customers, with some basic privacy protections in terms of what they can do with the information that they collect about their consumers, about their customers. So the rules did not prevent ISPs, which is uh, the acronym for Internet Service Provider, from selling customer data. They simply required that customers be aware and consent to... Be aware of and consent to that data selling, the the sale of their information. So what kind of information are we talking about? Ars Technica wrote about this. They have a great list. Geolocation data. So that is your IP address, where you actually physically are logging onto the internet. Financial and health information. Um, So obviously that includes information that you are looking up on the internet. You know, clearly a lot of us... I mean, basically all of us, anytime we feel sick, we Google like, you know, am I going to (laughs) die? I have a cold, things like that. Uh, So that health information, um, children's information, information about your kids, um, information that could be as sensitive. I mean, the the things that people Google are so sensitive. Web browsing history, obviously the, the websites that you visit, certainly your search history, the way that you use apps on your phone and iPad and other devices, as well as even the content of your communications. Um, So in order for ISPs to sell this information under the FCC's rules that were promulgated in 2016 and were set to go into effect in December of this year, they would have to get your permission to sell that data. And frankly, who the fuck is going to give them the permission to sell that information? No one, right? So effectively it is a great privacy rule. Now the GOP does not like this rule. Um, Trump's appointee to run the FCC is a guy named Ajit Pai. He has said, this is just incredible shit. He has said that eliminating the privacy rule is important because it will reduce confusion among consumers. (laughs) This is basically the line that has been fed to them by the cable industries lobbying group. Um, he told Congress, quote, American consumers should not have to be lawyers or engineers to figure out if their information is protected, end quote. Yeah, because it won't be protected is the, is the simple thing, right? <laughs> He's like, basically, the argument is let's allow ISPs to do the same thing that Facebook and Google do, which is to monetize personal information, mm-hmm. Um, with virtually no protections Mm -hmm. at all. And doing so will level the playing field and make it really easy for Americans to understand that they are getting completely fucked by everyone. So there won't be any confusion. Comcast will be fucking them just as bad as Google and Facebook, right? Um, Jeff Flake, Republican senator from Arizona, introduced a measure to block the implementation of this great FCC privacy rule. There were 23 GOP co-sponsors in the Senate. The measure passed 50 to 48 on a straight party line vote. All every single Democrat voted no. And the fucking coward and piece of shit, Rand Paul, for some, I was going to ask, I was totally going to ask why did Rand Paul vote for this? He didn't vote. Like maybe he had to pee wow. real bad, and he was just no in the bathroom. No, that's always deliberate. Yeah, of course it was. No, of course it was a, fucking deliberate. That's always deliberate. So you know, of course I say that because Rand Paul is like Mr. Fourth Amendment, right? He's Mr. Privacy, and well, but like, why couldn't he vote no? Like even if he like cut a deal with McConnell or whatever, they <laughs> still would have passed it, right?
2: So like, why couldn't he just vote? I no? mean, it would have
3: passed, but I, you know, I don't Ugh. know. You'd have to ask him. He, he maybe he felt like he owed it to the. um to the cable companies. Oh, really oh, I guess sure. it would have been a tiebreaker, right? If no. He, no, but
2: if he didn't vote and it was, what did you say? It was, it was, 50 was? To 48. forty-eight. There
3: were two GOP senators who did not vote. It was Rand Paul and some guy I've never heard of. Um, I see. So if he had voted, no, they still would have passed yeah. it. So I don't understand. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's it's fascinating. bullshit. And he should feel really bad about himself for doing that. I mean, if he had voted, it would have, the, the single vote difference would have been pretty stark, I think. Um, Nonetheless, it was approved. I don't know. Yeah. It was approved. Yeah. Um, Jeff Flake has said that he again. Um, Ars Technica quoted, quotes Jeff Flake as saying that he introduced this measure to quote protect consumers from overreaching internet regulation, which is you know. I mean, the Republicans <laughs> they do this all the time. Obviously, you know, with I know with yeah. health issues with. You know, food safety, <laughs> environmental regulations. They say, oh, we have to protect American consumers from, from too much regulation. What that actually means is we're going to allow corporations to completely fuck you. Um, because that's what we feel like doing. So obviously, you know, Ajit Pai's claim that this is important because Americans don't, shouldn't be lawyers or engineers in order to understand. The degree to which their online information is protected is total horseshit. The real reason that this is happening is that the Republican Senate and Trump's FCC chairman want ISPs like Comcast and Time Warner to be able to get in on the game that Google and Facebook have made billions of dollars from, which is monetizing very sensitive private data. The key distinction, however, between Google and Facebook on the one hand and Comcast and Time Warner on the other is that we do not pay Google and Facebook every month for shitty fucking service, which is what we do for Comcast and Time Warner, um, which basically have regional monopolies. You know, I live in Boston, and the only high-speed internet that I can get at my house is Comcast. I have no choice. Um, If I don't feel like using Google or Facebook, I can make that choice. If I want to access the internet at home, I do not have a choice but to use Comcast. Not to mention, I pay them $100 a month um, I don't pay Google shit except for my private information, right? Uh so Congress is very confused about this.
0: pretty big story coming out of um, Washington, the FCC uh, concerning internet privacy. Um, interesting debate that was happening on the floor of the Congress today. Uh, two representatives, uh, actually several representatives spoke on uh, the lack of privacy uh, that this new legislation is going to allow. Uh, Keith Ellison, uh, former candidate for the DNC chair was speaking on the floor and he said, um, if the Congress and the Senate is going to pass legislation that's going to allow citizens' uh, browser histories to be sold to marketers, then the people who actually sign this legislation should proactively turn over their histories, their browser history, like right now. So in other words, if you're so comfortable, according to Keith Ellison, he was saying, if you're so comfortable selling or allowing the citizens of the United States private information, private information, Of browser history to be sold to marketers then turn over your browser history right now another congressman talked about underwear that he purchased uh, online for the first time he's seriously excited about the fact that he purchased underwear online totally different conversation but he pointed out that no one should be able to find out precisely the size the color, the fabric of his underwear that he purchased online. And even worse than that, not only find it out, but actually have that information sold to marketers. And and then marketers turn around and sell it and distribute it to all different sources. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. Legislation is being passed through Congress. It's almost uh, we're we're actually there at this point. And it's um, it's really tied back to President Obama's um, in December, um, uh, what's called midnight regulations that happened underneath President Obama's administration. Um, The FCC uh, issued new rules that regulated how Internet service providers secure and protect quote, sensitive or private customer data as they collect and share it with advertisers, of third parties. So according to the new rules, um, the, uh, the new rules, according to the midnight regulations, they would have required that ISPs, Internet Service Providers, uh, offer you, the consumer, an opportunity to opt in um, in order for that information to be passed on to third parties. Pretty standard. Right. You see this now. In some cases, you get an opportunity to say, do you want to share this information with third party uh, providers or marketers? And you have the power to say yes or no. This is what the Obama administration put into play. Also, another rule that would have taken effect from the FCC, uh, it regulated how Internet service providers disclosed to customers what information was collected. So it made it clear, this is what we're collecting, this is what we're viewing, and now you can opt in to uh, determine whether or not you want this information shared. Um, Basically protecting your privacy, protecting your rights as an online consumer. Uh, It also required that internet service providers providers disclose how this information is showed, displayed, and it required that internet service providers disclose when they're, um, they were victims of data breaches. All right, so all of those things sound pretty reasonable for you to have a um, browsing experience that is somewhat private or at least private between you and your internet service provider and not having your, not to have your information sold to someone else. Well, apparently this is not good enough for the Republican Congress and the Republican Senate. Um, and we're moving into a phase where they are trying to override the FCC um, in order to give ISP providers, Comcast, Verizon, at and the ability to do all of these things without your consent and without full disclosure of what's being collected and who they're selling it to, nor would they have to tell you when that data has been breached. So now you can have all of your browsing history, your personal data, your, your health concerns, because everybody Somewhere around 1130 at night, when you see something on your arm, you type it in. What is this round red rash on my arm? And you get a list of things. You click on it. Now the internet is aware, or at least your internet service provider is aware of what your, your health concerns, right? They, they understand your shopping habits clearly already. Um, they, they, everybody at some point has consumed online porn. No big deal. But you don't want a third party knowing that you consume porn. It's none of their damn business or the type of porn that you like. So now they're able to say, okay, this guy, he happens to like uh, gay porn. So he may not be open and in and, and public, but now we know that he's either closet gay or he, whatever. They have too much information on us. Our internet service providers know us better than our significant others, than our spouses. Shit. They know us better than ourselves. And now it's not a one-to-one relationship with your internet service provider. Congress wants all that information to be able to be sold to marketing agencies, third parties who are able to use big data analytics and to find trends and market to you better, but not only to you, but sell that information to advertisers so that they can uh, to uh, market directly to you even more effectively. They understand your political views. They understand your, um, you know, where you bank, who you bank with. I mean, you could, it's not a far, it's not far fetched for them to understand how much money you have in your bank, right? It it may not be, it's clearly not going to be a one-to-one relationship where you log into Bank of America and now your internet service provider understands there is encryption that's involved, but the connection is there. And the opportunity for data breach and that information to not be told to you is clearly there. So just so you know what we're fighting against, in 2015, this industry was a $22.6 billion industry. It's projected to become a $33.5 billion industry. And this is why Congress, Republicans in Congress, and I'm sure we're going to have some Democrats sign on to this uh, if they haven't already, But Congress as a whole is giving the red light, the green light rather, to this project where you as an Internet consumer and an Internet, someone who surfs the Web, to use a very old (laughs) colloquial, you can now be packaged together, all of your data packaged together, sold to third party without your consent. So President Obama's midnight regulations were there to prevent this from happening without your disclosure. Right. Without you giving the being given the opportunity to opt in or opt out, Um, Congress is pushing back the House of Representatives. They passed um, the Congressional Review Act. Um, Actually, the Congressional Review Act is previously passed. But the House of Representatives uh, passed the Midnight Rules Relief Act. That's what they passed to amend the Congressional Review Act. And the new Trump appointed head of the FCC paused the new FCC regulations before they took place, took effect on March 2nd. So this is what's going on. The new rules were supposed to take place on uh, March 2nd. Trump appointed someone who came in and froze that. So the new rules have not taken place. And so in the interim, what Congress has done is they're seeking a relief act to the Midnight Regulations Relief Act. Right. This is this is such a relief for corporations but not for you, right? But the language is such that they make make you feel like they're doing this on behalf of you. And this is so that they can um, take a look at the Congressional Review Act and use that to override the FCC rules. Now there have to be special conditions for the Congress to override FCC rules. And this is what they're gearing up to do. The FCC rules are on the books. They're on the books as of the midnight regulations in December of the Obama administration. And now Congress is doing what they can to undermine that so that you do not get any transparency into data breaches. You do not get any transparency into what's being collected on uh, collected. You do not get the opportunity to opt in. And now you are at the full complete. um, You're completely exposed to marketing agencies, and to big data houses that want to get as much data points, as many data points on you as they possibly can. Now, that's the story. Here's here's my experience with this. Um, This this stuff is... uh, So I come from an industry. I come from the marketing industry. And I work for uh, some pretty big marketing companies um, that actually... um, they don't get third party information, not the company that we worked for, but what we were able to do is once we had the information, we were able to create profiles on individuals. You come to our site or you come to a site that's affiliated with us, we were able to make profiles on what you clicked on, what you saw, what you viewed. This is pretty low hanging fruit. This has been a while for a long time. Um, in my time there, I've worked with other companies that literally, Want every single data point that they could possibly get on you. Not only what site did you go to, but how long did your mouse hover over a particular line on that site? And what did that line say? And was that something? Did you highlight that line? They want this type of granular data on you so that they can make a composite sketch of you as a a holistic data point and say not data point, but a holistic set of data points. And so that they can say that this is what you are interested in. They want to know everything about you so that that advertisement that pops up on your screen. Whenever you forget to cut on your ad block, that advertisement can be perfectly designed to get you to click on it and not only to click on it, but to buy. This goes to the conversation of not only, let me start that sentence over. This goes to the conversation of privacy in general. And we always fight against the government um, from giving them the opportunity to become big brother. Simultaneously, corporate America is the quintessential big brother. The only thing is that they're not trying to demand that you think a certain way. They just want to milk you for every single dime they possibly can. And so this is all in attempts for them to get a better insight, a better profile into who you are, what you're afraid of, what your health concerns are, what your vices are, what your addictions are, so that they can gather that information and then, and then sell you something based on this new profile. And then take that information and to sell it to someone else for God knows what they want to do. This is what Congress, who's supposed to serve the people, they want you to not have the ability to say, I don't want to opt into that. In fact, I want to opt out from that. And now they're doing everything they can with the help of the Trump FCC chair and uh, this this entire environment of surrounding the trump administration they're doing everything they can to prevent you from having the ability to have privacy online you're worried about big brother in the form of the government you should but you should be worried about big brother in corporations and corporate america and the free reign that our politicians give corporate america to take every data point about your life they possibly can
4: What you were describing so far has more in my mind to do with policing, they call it law enforcement, but policing than cyber technology and online surveillance. How do you see that part of this picture shaping up?
5: Well, I think this is a really important point, because I think when most people think about surveillance, they think it really rose, like, with the rise of technology, that somehow when we started to carry devices, we became more unsafe with regard to our right to privacy. And we didn't? No. I mean, we've got to have, like, a whole reframe and understand that surveillance was always part of state violence and the U.S. settler colonial state. So what I mean by that is, is that even though we have the right to privacy guaranteed in our Constitution, that only guarantees guaranteed it for those that were white, mm-hmm. male, and cis. If you were black, if you were indigenous, you were surveilled very heavily by the, col- the, the colonial administration that eventually became our government. So for example, in New York City, um, in 1713, they passed this law called the Lantern Law. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. So during that time, because they were afraid of people mobilizing in the dark to resist um, slavery, they would anyone who was black and indigenous and over the age of 14 had to carry a lantern. <laughs> And if you didn't carry a lantern while you were walking, you could be subjected to 40 lashes by your master and worse. And that idea was, at that time, that was the technology of the moment, you know, and it's the forerunner of what we see now when you go into, um, you know, black and brown communities in New York City where they do those massive lights and you can't focus because they're so bright. Anytime there's been a shift in technology, we've seen it turned in a way to be able to, Mm. to manufacture control of the state of our, our lives. And at the very same time, there's a consumer strategy
4: too, in the sense that we've been sold that carrying our own lantern
5: will make life so much easier. Exactly. I mean, but we have to think about, like, whether it's the iPhone or whether we're using Google search, the devices and these platforms, they're not really free. We're paying them with our data. Yeah. And what that means is, is like, for example, let's say you're doing a Google search and you're about to go to the Women's March and you search, you know, what are my rights Where's the location for direct uh, action? You know, how do I do civil disobedience? Just from a set of questions of what you put into Google search, you can be put into a database of people that they assume are going to be unlawful actors for that protest. So you don't need to be interrogated. You've already given it away in your search inquiries. So
4: what do we do? Not search for that information?
5: No, I think what we can do, and the way I talk about it, it's like harm reduction. So we know that these devices are going to leak data to people that want to do bad things things to us. So we want to be able, and this is the conversation in digital security, is practice harm reduction by using circumvention tools. So things like signal on the phone can really help you protect like your text messages and the way that you talk to people so that you're off of some of the surveillance grid Mm -hmm. for folks. You can also use um, DuckDuckGo as an alternative to Google so that you don't create like a data tracked search engine profile. So your searchers are kind of free from Google and Google Analytics. So that's program that doesn't maintain a history of what you've searched for? Exactly, exactly. Or a cookie. Or a cookie. <laughs> friendly name for something
4: not so friendly. I
5: know, exactly. Um and the other thing that I recommend is something like uh something to protect your network access. So right now if you go to Starbucks or if you go to um a Wi-Fi network in an organization, you're when you're connecting to the internet, you're connecting to the internet in the wide open. What you need is something like a condom to protect your access so that none of your data leaks So to protect your network access or give yourself that condom, um, one of the things that we recommend is something called a virtual private network Mm -hmm. um, or using something like Tor. So I think that combination of using Signal, using a VPN to protect your network access, and then being able to use DuckDuckGo to anonymize your searches helps you be able to begin to start to take back some of your digital security.
1: What if you could make the world a little bit better every time you used your cell phone, instead of just those times you use it to call Congress? Well, it turns out you can, thanks to Credo Mobile, because whenever you use a Credo product or service, you generate critical donations for progressive causes and vital activism work at no extra cost to you. With over $150,000 donated every month to big nonprofits like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, and some smaller ones doing critical work like the People for the American Way and the Brennan Center for Justice, whose data we cite on this show pretty often, Credo truly does give you the power to make a positive social change every day. Not to mention, they offer coverage on the nation's largest and most dependable 4G LTE network, and you can easily transfer over with your existing number. So if you want a better world for all of us and a better way to stay connected to it, you want Credo Mobile. And right now, Credo has a special deal for our listeners. Go to credomobile.com slash left and get two smartphones free plus 50% off unlimited talk. And text. Just go to credomobilecom Mobile.com slash best of That's Credomobile.com slash best of or call them direct at 800 654 3182 and mention best of the left to get the deal. It's time your phone company represented your values. That's Credo Mobile.
6: This is chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes. Today I briefed the
7: president on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how it uh, relates to uh, President-elect Trump and uh, his
6: transition team. Yikes. This is what they mean by the term highly irregular. For starters, it is the Congress with the oversight authority over the executive branch, not vice versa why would Nunes be briefing the president about committee activities? Why especially would he be briefing the central figure in the committee's investigation into Russian interference of the 2016 election? The answer to that is Nunes, a Trump backer, believed he had new information to bolster the White House claim that Barack Obama had bugged Trump Tower. That accusation had come in a notorious presidential tweet Three weeks ago.
8: How low has President Obama gone to tap my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon Watergate,
6: bad or sick guy. This week had begun, of course, at Nunez committee hearing with FBI Director James Comey calling Trump's allegation hogwash. I have no information that supports those tweets. Whereupon Trump and his spokesman Sean Spicer came back with. Okay, maybe not wiretapped, wiretapped, but under surveillance, Nunez's big scoop, which he raced to share with the White House without even briefing his Democratic colleagues on the committee, was that communications of Trump campaign staffers were indeed found in routine intercepts of foreign intelligence targets and their names carelessly bandied about the spookosphere.
7: Details about U.S. persons associated with the incoming administration, details with little or no apparent foreign intelligence value, were widely disseminated in intelligence community reporting. I want to be clear, none of this surveillance was related to Russia or the investigation of Russian activities or of the Trump
6: team. So, no, no wiretap, and... No, no Obama fingerprints and no, no targeting of Trump associates, but still evidence that the president was kind of, sort of on the right track. As we shall see in a moment, there may be good reason for outrage about what is called the unmasking of Americans incidentally caught up in vast sweeps of foreign targets. But this gets to the week's highest irregularity of all. Nunez is irate that American citizens could have their privacy and reputations so violated through literally unwarranted surveillance. Yet the chairman himself has been a tireless advocate for precisely the laws that permit it, especially a passage in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act called Section 702. Let's listen again to Nunez's terminology.
7: Today I briefed the president on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how
3: it...
2: Incidental uh, collection relates. is when Americans' communications are picked up in the course of conducting surveillance of a foreign target.
6: Liza Goitine is co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Incidental collection, she says, is the inevitable result when scads of messages to and from foreign subjects are hoovered into the intel cloud. No warrant necessary, as authorized by Section 702.
2: So the way it works now, any foreigner overseas is fair game, uh, regardless of whether either the foreigner or the American with whom the foreigner is communicating is suspected of any wrongdoing. And that really opens the door to mass surveillance. So what we saw in 2011, anyway, is that there were 250 million Internet communications that were picked up under this authority.
6: So in order to avoid spying on Americans, the government is supposed to mask the identities of those millions incidentally surveilled. But under the Nunez theory, Trump aides like Michael Flynn were unmasked and subsequently exposed through leaks.
2: I think what Nunes was saying here was that the information was lawfully collected. Presumably the target was not an American, assuming that this happened under Section 702. But that the information about the Americans, in this case the Trump aides, was not properly minimized. The government is supposed to mask or delete the Americans' information after the government gets it, but there are numerous, numerous exceptions to that rule. And in fact, routinely, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, they keep this data, Americans' communications, for years, and they can use it in all kinds of ways, in criminal investigations, as well as national security investigations, And there are also many exceptions to the requirement that they mask the identities of the Americans before they share that information.
6: The other astonishing aspect of this episode is that Nunes is suddenly so upset about the misuse of Section 702.
2: Yes, Nunes has been a staunch champion of Section 702.
7: We need to educate members of Congress on the importance of reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act.
2: He voted for Section 702 in 2008. He voted to reauthorize it in 2012. Representatives Massey and Lofgren offered an amendment that would have required a warrant for the government to search through Section 702 data for Americans' information he wrote a letter to his colleagues saying how important it was to oppose the amendment and leave Section 702 the way it was. And I think that's causing a bit of cognitive dissonance for him now as he tries to support the Trump administration. He clearly has known all along what Section 702 does and what it's about. So that's why he's trying to somehow be critical of the surveillance that happened under the law without actually being critical
6: of the law now back to the particulars, here's Congressman Mike Lee, the Utah Republican, the Libertarian, speaking on Monday about the very nature of the wiretap that Trump alleged. President Trump might have been referring to something else perhaps an order issued pursuant to Section 702
1: of the FISA amendments, one that was aimed at an operative of a foreign government, but incidentally brought in communications involving U.S. citizens, uh, some of whom
6: perhaps might have been affiliated with the Trump campaign. I don't know. And uh, the president himself on Wednesday said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, I meant wiretapping, not wiretapping. I wonder if actually their explanation is correct.
2: Sure. I mean, I think the problem with Trump's tweet was that, you know, he was implying that President Obama personally, you know, ordered the surveillance, which wouldn't be legal, and that there was a physical wiretap of his personal phones, which suggests that he personally was targeted. These things are not true. But I frankly would have been quite surprised if I had learned that there was no surveillance that picked up communications of Trump's aides. The Trump transition team was routinely communicating with foreign officials. In fact, probably a little more than a transition team should be doing. And picking up foreign officials' communications is what the NSA does, whether those officials are friends or foe. So it would have been a real surprise to me to learn that there was no information about Trump's campaign aides anywhere within the NSA's databases.
6: This seems like kind of an arcane subject, the innards of a complex statute. But, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the Intelligence Committee hearing in the House on Monday was convened not to discuss the Russia investigation, but Section 702 itself.
7: i Rogers. I'm going to begin with a question to you concerning the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. FISA Section 702. That's 702. Section 702 under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act.
2: There's been a focus in general in the House on Section 702, which is scheduled to expire at the end of this year unless it's reauthorized. And there was a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee on March 1st at which I testified. There was a tremendous amount of interest in how it's actually affecting Americans, how the communications that are pulled in can be used against Americans. There was a classified panel, which I was not there for that, but it went on for three hours, and I was told that all 30 members were in attendance.
6: You've been getting calls from who all week?
2: Oh, uh, I've gotten calls from reporters at conservative outlets. i appeared on Fox Business.
9: Whether the president is right or wrong on the wiretapping claims that has ignited a much-needed debate on personal privacy and government spying on its citizens. Elizabeth Goytine joins me. She's co-director. This of is
2: definitely a topic that's of major interest now to conservatives, and I welcome that.
6: Right. If anyone had said to you, they said, Liza, once Trump is the president, we're going to get rid of this Section 702 once and for all. Tell me, <laughs> tell me w- what you would have said.
2: I would have been startled. <laughs> I, I think that the people in the civil liberties community who have been working on this issue for a very long time – pretty much thought that the prospects for 702 reform had taken a bit of a nosedive with the election of President Trump. I would say that there are a lot of mainstream conservatives who voted for Section 702 and voted to reauthorize it without really knowing what was in it. A lot of members probably really didn't understand what the implications were for Americans, So I think what we're seeing is just a shift in understanding and a shift in attitude toward the statute and what it can do.
6: You mean now that what is good for the goose has been shown to be good for the gander? Exactly. There's
2: no evidence right now that any abuse has actually happened in this case, but the potential is there. And that's the problem. We shouldn't have to wonder or guess whether the government is going too far in its surveillance of Americans The law should be very clear that the government needs a warrant in order to access Americans' communications and that surveillance of foreigners should only happen in cases where there is some potential threat to our country or our interests. So in some ways, these crazy tweets have done us a favor because they've really rejuvenated this issue and rightly so.
8: We turn now to look at President Donald Trump's newly appointed chair of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, who has been, has begun to attack net neutrality rules and other consumer protections. In a series of actions earlier this month, Pai blocked nine companies from providing affordable high-speed Internet to low-income families. He withdrew the FCC's support from an effort to curb the exorbitant cost of phone calls from prison. And he also said he disagrees with the 2015 decision to regulate the Internet like a public utility.
4: For more, we're going to Los Angeles, where we'll speak with Jessica Gonzalez, deputy director, senior counsel at Free Press. Uh, Gonzalez was former on the FCC's Open Internet Advisory Committee and Diversity Committee. She's also the former executive vice president of the National Hispanic Media Coalition. Jessica Gonzalez, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, talk about the Thank significance you. of the elevation of uh, Ajit Pai to be the head of the FCC and the decisions and his the stands that he takes.
9: Well. Ajit Pai is Trump's new FCC chairman, and it should come as a surprise to no one that he poses a significant threat, not only to net neutrality, but also to the digital divide. In his first weeks—his first week in office, he talked a good game about bridging the digital divide, but actions speak louder than words. And if you look at his actions, there's a very, very troubling— Uh, history of voting against reforms to both bring affordable access to poor Americans, to low-income Americans, to people of color who disproportionately lack home internet access, but there's also a troubling history of voting against net neutrality. He voted against the Lifeline order to modernize Lifeline and bring affordable broadband to low-income families. He voted against the E-rate order to help bring high-speed Internet to schools and libraries in poor neighborhoods. And he voted against net neutrality to keep the Internet open, so that people who don't usually get a spot in mainstream media can tell their own stories, can organize for justice, and can make a living. And so, we're very concerned. We have a close eye on him. And we can't trust what he says. And actions speak louder than words.
8: Well, Jessica, in a 2015 interview with Reason TV, Ajit Pai suggested that any federal regulation of the Internet is harmful. This is what he said. Do you
7: trust the federal government to make the Internet ecosystem more vibrant than it is today? Can you think of any regulated utility, like the electric company or water company, that is as innovative as the Internet? I mean, I think what he, what Mark Andreessen, who developed, of course, the first Netscape browser, what he and other entrepreneurs are seeing is that... This is something that has worked really well, and there's no reason for the FCC to mess it up by inserting itself into areas where it hasn't been before.
8: So, what about this issue of uh, his view of the Internet? And remember, it took the Obama administration several years, only the last couple of years of of Obama's presidency, before they finally took a clear stand that the Internet was a public utility. And and even under Wheeler, who no one expected, as the chair of the uh, FCC, a former telecommunications guy, that it would uh, uh, pass—it would take that stand. It has now. Uh, What would it mean if Pai got the FCC to vote uh, to uh, I'll rescind that.
9: Well, it would be very dangerous. Look, we're in an administration that is trying to shut down speech. We have a we have a president and his surrogates telling the media to shut up. They're trying to silence dissent, and the internet is the one clear way where we know that people movements can control the narrative and can organize. Four million Americans wrote to the FCC in 2015 and told them, we want an open Internet. We understand that the Internet companies have monopoly-like status, that they are blocking—you know, that they have the power and the incentive to block access and to cut special deals behind our backs. And we don't want that. We want to be able, once we pay the hefty prices we do to get on the Internet, we want to be able to go— go where we want, see what we want, and access the content we want without getting shoved over into a slow lane, uh, if, if you don't have the money. And so it's, it's incredibly vital now more than ever that we protect an open internet and that this administration heed the, the millions and millions of regular people that, you know, I think we cannot trust Ajit Pai. He's a former Verizon lobbyist. He's a, you know, walking in the footsteps of Trump. And we need to be very, very, very careful.
8: I wanted to ask you about the troubling role of a lot of the civil rights organizations on this issue—the NAACP and others—and this uh, this minority media telecommunications organization. Could you talk about uh, the disappointing role that some of these organizations have played in this debate?
9: Sure. Well, there's a few organizations uh, that represent people of color that have come out on the wrong side of this issue. Uh, it's troubling, but frankly, if you look at the grassroots, the vast majority of people of color understand this. We understand that we— do not like the way we have been represented in mainstream media. We're portrayed as criminals. We're tr- portrayed as, as people who pose a danger to the society. We understand that the internet has played a democratizing force in making sure that our voices have, her- are heard, in making sure that we've been able to organize and in making sure that we can really, uh, you know, tap into the networks that we need to tap into to, to change the narrative in this country for the better of, of lots of different issues, for, for the water protectors, for immigrant rights activists, for Black Lives Matter. And, and we see the way that movements have utilized the internet, uh, to change the way society perceives us. And, and so these, these groups, there's a few of them. They're on the wrong side of the issue and it's very troubling. Um, but, <laughs> they, you know, they, they don't represent most people of color.
4: I want to. I want to ask you about Ajit Pai's position on the FCC's attempts to prevent uh, prison phone monopolies from dramatically overcharging families uh, for phone calls um, to prisoners.
9: Sure. Well, this is yet another example of where he talks the talk. But he walks in the other direction. He, in, in both 2013 and 2015, the FCC looked at the issue of exorbitant prison phone rates. Some, um, families of inmates and, and detainees are paying up to $17 for a 15-minute call. It's outrageous. Um, the, the, the prisons are getting kickbacks from prison phone companies to charge these exorbitant rates. And it's a real abuse of power. Ajit Pai actually acknowledged that this was unjust and that the interests of um, inmates' families may not necessarily align with the prison phone companies. Yet he went ahead and voted against two different orders to help regulate the rates and the fees that are charged by these companies. And so he he talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. In fact, he filed a 20-page dissent in 2013 that that. Um, mirrored some of the company talking points. And so we have to really hold him accountable on this. He does not have the, uh, the best interests of communities of color and poor people at heart. And we need to hold his feet to the fire.
10: And I've got my feet to the fire, my feet to the fire, my feet to the fire.
5: I've got my feet to the fire, my feet to the fire, my feet to the fire.
1: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, prepare to save the internet again. Just a couple of years ago, we were defending net neutrality from the Obama administration. Millions took action and raised their voices, and the battle was won. For the moment. Today, in the upside down world of the Trump administration, we have a former Verizon lawyer heading up the FCC. As his first order of business, Chairman Ajit Pai took steps to halt updates to Lifeline, an existing FCC program providing affordable telephone service that was in the process of expanding to provide affordable broadband to those in need. That's just a taste of who this guy is. Last week, after Congress voted to let internet service providers have their way with your data, Sean Spicer formally announced that next on the administration's hit list is net neutrality. As a minority Republican member on the FCC in 2015, Pi voted against net neutrality, so we know where he stands. But just as it was for Democrats, having the FCC revisit the net neutrality issue is going to be a political nightmare for Trump and Republicans. Pai has already said he will decline to enforce many of the consumer protections created during the Obama administration, and that includes net neutrality, but he can only go so far with the rules still in place. So here's what you can do. Get involved right now with the organizations that will be at the forefront in this rematch. Head over to freepress.net and the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EF and subscribe to those organizations' email lists and follow them on social media so that you'll get the latest updates and the calls to action. In the meantime, you should keep calling your senators and representatives and letting them know how upset you are about the latest attack on your privacy and how critical an open internet is to our democracy and a fair, just society. Let them know your vote depends on their response. It's infuriating to fight these same battles over and over again, but remember that the fight is not only about privacy. The fate of the resistance may rest on this issue. Freepress.net put it more plainly than anyone else, quote, Everything people have been fighting for will be in jeopardy if we lose access to the open internet. The Trump administration will continue to threaten civil liberties, undermine a free press, and strip away environmental protections, and we will be helpless to organize and resist without net neutrality, unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if saving a pillar of modern democracy is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about preserving net neutrality, again, via social media, so that others in your network can spread the word too.
5: Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
10: I want to um, uh, close by asking a couple questions about the recent um, CIA releases um, from WikiLeaks. Uh, just to put it in context for people, uh, the Vault 7 uh, releases are – it's about 8,700 or so um, documents or files um, that deal with the um, CIA's hacking capabilities. And one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is the idea that uh, – or the, the platform that allows a, a particular Samsung TV to be turned into a kind of in-home surveillance device. And you know a lot of people – Uh, now are are becoming aware of what's, what's called the internet of things. You know, you've got your, your refrigerator is hooked up to the internet. Uh, you've got that damn Alexis or Siri or, you know, go Google or whatever it's called. Um, when, as you, I know you, you, you very early when this came out said that this is, was extraordinarily significant. What to you, given your expertise and your background, what are the biggest takeaways from what has been released so far? And what do you think is important for people to understand about what's contained in these CIA documents?
11: Yeah. I mean, there's uh, a lot to talk about here. The thing that I I don't like that I'm not so impressed by is everybody's talking about, you know, Samsung TVs. Nobody really cares uh, about these Samsung TVs uh, in terms of what this means for our future. Any device that's connected to the Internet can be hacked. Right. And this Samsung TV in this circumstance uh, is not hacked through the Internet. This is a USB enabled hack. Right. Where somebody has to. This is an old version of TV. Uh, They had to go in and actually stick a USB drive in it, start the TV up, and that would hack the TV. Then you pull the USB drive out, and the TV starts listening in on you. Uh, And people go, oh, well, the CIA is not going to be breaking into my house, right? Uh, And that's actually true. Uh, That's me. Don't don't panic. Uh, But they don't go into your house, right? Uh, What they do is they wait for when these devices are being shipped to you, when you order them on Amazon or whatever. They go to them at the airports. They get the box. They use a little hairdryer to soften the adhesive. They open up the box. Then they put the USB stick in it. They seal the box back all nice and perfect. Uh, and then they ship it on to you. And now your router, your computer, uh, your TV is hacked. This is a very routine thing that happens, right?
10: Wait, so you're and saying it's you're saying that we're um, just doing the hands on on this, by the way, that's the FBI. Just to clarify. So you're and I know that there are documents that um, that were made public because of you Um that showed that they're intercepting routers and other devices uh, in in bulk, right? And like for instance, some of the uh, the exports from the United States that deal with internet technology and are going overseas, they'll actually contaminate those devices without necessarily knowing what specific person's going to get them. They're 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 contaminating them at the source before they're shipped.
11: Sort of. Okay. Uh, it, it's not. Yes, that It's that they a question, not a statement. On mass, indiscriminately for everything, right? It's not like every iPhone that gets sent to China is backdoored. Uh, If they know there's a particular zip code or a particular region that has like a nuclear facility in it, uh, they'll do this kind of thing. Uh, And that would be appropriate in many cases. You would want them to do that. Uh, But this is a method, right, that they apply to many different things uh, where they'll also do this to political parties. Right. They might also do this to a newsroom if they see the device uh, is going to a particular building or whatever. Um, These these are the kind of causes for concern. Scope out from the individual thing of how does this affect me? Think about how does this affect society, right? And this is what the real value uh, of this CIA release is about. The most important thing here is that we now have concrete evidence uh, that the CIA, the NSA, the United States government writ large, and our partners in places like the United Kingdom are supporting a commercial market in making every internet connected device less secure. They are paying companies to develop what are basically digital weapons uh, or tools like burglary tools uh, that will break in any device, right? And then when they create these things, the problem is uh, anybody can use them, right? Uh, you don't just have to have the tool if you can rediscover the same kind of thing, which studies just came out in the last week showing the frequency of this, by the way, for any given tool uh, is five to twenty percent per year. Right. Five percent, if you believe uh, sort of a a not very reliable RAND study uh, from a closed data set, no academics are allowed to look at it. No universities are allowed to uh, look at it. Uh, They just say, trust us. Uh, These numbers say what they think they are. They say there's a five percent chance every year that when the government uses a new kind of wiretap capability, the Russians, the Chinese, random hackers, whoever will rediscover it and can use it to listen to American iPhones, right? Or Samsung TVs in the United States, whatever the device of the day happens to be. Uh, Or 20% uh, every year. That's insane, right? Uh, It is. This doesn't happen in any other industry. Uh, If every time you bought a hamburger, there was a 5% chance that would kill you, people wouldn't be eating hamburgers anymore until they changed the law. This is the dynamic that we really see in this release. uh, And that's the thing that people are focusing the least on, Outside of policy circles, uh, because it's not very exciting, it's not very accessible, it's not very easy to understand. But this largely um, misses, I I, I think, the the top level point when we think about all of this stuff. Uh, And this dynamic of Donald Trump, the fact that the world is on fire, the fact that the president's statements can't be relied upon, uh, the fact that his laws are violating our Constitution in such a blatant and open manner, right, is that this is actually not new. What's different is he is so inept that we see it, right? Uh, Even his representatives go on the news and they don't try to lie carefully. They don't try to lie uh, in a manner that has a kind of art to it. They do so openly, without shame, because they say, what are you going to do to stop us? But this happened in the Bush administration. He created a warrantless wiretapping program that on its face violated the Fourth Amendment so badly So boldly that the attorney general of the United States at one point refused to sign it uh, because he didn't think he could defend that uh, if he was eventually brought into the docket one day. What did the president do? Well, he didn't go, all right, well, the attorney general says this isn't legal. We shouldn't do it. He turned to the NSA director and said, well, the attorney general won't sign off on this. Will you do this anyway? And the director of the national security said, well, the president's asking me, sure, sure even though he knew that was a violation of the Constitution. Let's go to President Barack Obama, right? Uh, This is a similar thing. Obama was a fairly progressive, fairly liberal uh, politician by American standards. And I don't mean on the American political spectrum, because he was actually pretty far right as far as what people would consider to be a liberal. Uh, He was the one who said, the world is a global battlefield. I'm going to assassinate US citizens without a trial outside of an actual combat zone because I believe they're a threat to the United States. Now, right or wrong, whether you think he was justified or unjustified in that, that's unprecedented and that's clearly a violation of due process, right? Um, but this happened. Uh, when you look at the statements of, of journalists uh, who worked under the Obama administration, uh, we're talking mainstream people, right? Uh, they're describing his activities against the press as a war on whistleblowers, a war against the press. Uh, Whenever something comes to the public eye, uh, cyber operations that are questionable, things that failed, uh, he starts trying to put people in jail. The editor of the New York Times, right, this is not what we would consider sort of a radical fringe source, said the Obama White House was the most secret they've they've ever dealt with. Uh, James Risen, who uh, the DOJ for some time threatened with jail if he wouldn't uh, reveal who his source was, said Obama was the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. Now, what does this all boil down to? Why does this matter? The reality is all governments lie. All governments break the law. And most frequently, this happens without us realizing it. The majority of us, right? People who follow this, people who study this, we'll see it. They'll complain, they'll protest, but they don't have critical mass because they don't have control of the airwaves. They're sort of shuttled off in the corner of the room where they talk amongst each, uh, each other. But the average person doesn't care that much because these presidencies, these administrations, give them the space to deny it to themselves, right? To say, I can go on with my day. I can go on with my life. And I don't have to confront these issues. I can live in my comfortable life. I can go home after a hard day, right? I've got people to take care of. I've got bills to do, uh, pay. I have obligations, I don't have time to save the government, right? We can't do that anymore. That is no longer a luxury. And that, more than anything else, may be the silver lining of this disastrous administration is the fact that people are, for the first time in a generation, realizing that democracy is not an inheritance. Folks, this is a challenge. This is our challenge. This is something that requires effort, This is something that requires sacrifice, and this is something that if you turn your back on, will not get better, it will get worse. It is not enough to believe in something. It is not enough to think that America is the land of the free, the home of the brave. We have constitutional values and these things will simply work out. They will mean nothing unless you make them mean something. It is not enough to believe in something, ladies and gentlemen, you must stand for something.
1: We just heard clips today, starting with humorless queers explaining how the repeal of ISP regulations helps clarify exactly how screwed we all are. The Benjamin Dixon Show laid out how we're all being bought and sold online. The Laura Flanders Show looked at some of the racist applications of surveillance laws through history and some steps we can take to maintain some of our privacy. On the Media discussed how Trump's paranoid tweets about wiretapping reopened a legitimate discussion about government spying. Democracy Now! introduced the new head of the FCC and explained why he's a threat to net neutrality and internet freedom. Our activism for today is in preparation for the coming rematch on net neutrality. And finally, we just heard Edward Snowden interviewed on Intercepted about the new Vault 7 leaks. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
12: Hello, Jay. This is Steve from New York. I'm a uh, healthcare provider, so very interested in the conversation that's been going on lately in terms of what we can do with Obamacare, etc. One thing that's been kind of driving me crazy, though, is just hearing how, I don't know, maybe simplistic some of the comments are, etc. Healthcare, it turns out, is horribly, horribly complicated in the uh, United States, and I don't think it's as simple as a yay or nay on Obamacare, or tweak this, change that, etc. This is a massive problem that's not going away anytime soon. Part of the problem, I think, and I say this, you know, again, being a healthcare expert, uh, is that we spend way too much time paying attention to insurance companies and insurance in general. I'm not saying that's not a problem. Of course it is. We need to fix our insurance industry. Uh, The biggest problems, of course, are the fact that industry in itself is for profit, and that creates a whole lot of problems. But again, it's more complicated than people think. One of the terms that keeps getting bantered around that's uh, both here on Best of the Left as well as elsewhere, and this has been the case for a long time, is the term single-payer. Single-payer can be good. Single-payer can also be bad. Many countries that have universal coverage, many countries in Europe, uh, Canada as well, they are not single-payer countries. We tend to misuse that term a lot. And think it's just the holy grail for healthcare. But, um, while well, it can be the right way to go, it also can be the wrong way to go. So, in other words, just uh, to recap that, there's a big difference between single payer and universal coverage that's affordable. Furthermore, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as we should probably call it, in itself is a conservative Republican plan that dates back to the uh, Richard Nixon administration. It's been pretty well documented in, um, uh, The scientific literature, and if people aren't aware of that, they should seek out some sources. All of that having been said, um, if insurance isn't just our only problem, then, you know, the question becomes what do we have to deal with in order to make our health insurance industries more affordable and uh, equitable and just? And the list is very long. Uh, It includes, but certainly is not limited to, as I said earlier, the for profit nature of insurance companies, but also in many instances, the for profit nature of healthcare facilities. We also have to be mindful of the fact that the costs of healthcare are not known to the consumer when they walk into the building. It's a a very big problem in terms of being able to shop around and pressure businesses and insurance companies to make sure that the system is more affordable. This includes, of course, drastically different costs for the same exact procedure, sometimes within the same county. There's been very good research on this that people can find online. Uh, We also have to consider the fact that our regulatory industry when it comes to uh, pharmacological companies is horrible, so these massive multinational, for-profit, publicly traded companies are allowed to siphon a massive quantity of money out of our pocketbooks when it comes to uh, our healthcare industries. This is not the case in many other countries, whether they are single-payer or not single-payer. We have the same problem when it comes to the manufacturing of medical devices. Uh, for example, in, in the U.S., sometimes an MRI machine can cost $3 million, whereas in a country like Japan, it could be 300000 And that's because the federal government puts a regulatory cap on how much you can charge uh, for certain products, et cetera. We have to, of course, factor into the equation the excessive cost of higher education. And on a less obvious note, if you really dive into the healthcare research, you're going to find out that our educational programs are horribly antiquated, and they lead not just to the death of literally hundreds of thousands of people per year, but uh, the ubiquity of the problem of misdiagnosis. This is probably the biggest factor that people don't talk about and is, of course, driving up the cost of healthcare, because if you're paying for bad services that aren't effective and efficient, the net result, of course, is the fact that you have repetitive bad services because individuals are just going to keep going to new providers, new clinics, new hospitals trying to seek a solution because the first, second, third and maybe tenth person did not solve their problem when in fact they should have Uh, another fair criticism of our system is that we tend to like because of our for-profit nature to take care of diseases as opposed to health, so disease care as opposed to health care, and then uh, making matters yet more complicated, just like we have food deserts, we also have health care deserts in this country because healthcare is such a for-profit entity. It causes usually poor neighborhoods, et cetera, minority neighborhoods, to not have access to high-quality health care. While there's no one source that's perfect uh, in terms of what we need to do with healthcare. care, I would certainly point people in the direction of T.R. Reed's book, The Healing of America. He takes one shoulder problem to 10 countries and uses the experience to, through the lens of experts, analyze their healthcare systems and talk about what's good and what's not good. He even dives into some of the important variables, like the difference between universality and um, single-payer healthcare systems. It's, it's certainly a good place for people to start if they're interested in the topic, even though the book is, at this point, a wee bit outdated. So... You know, I just uh, I want to implore people to think more about this, do a lot of research, and especially those groups that are seeking to act on reform. We should uh, make sure we're heading in the right direction before we take our first step. Keep up the great job. I love the show.
13: Hi, my name's Annie, and I'm from Alabama. I just wanted to make a comment on your last episode about inclusion and solidarity and how the progressive movement has to fight on multiple fronts. And something that the progressives seem to leave behind every time they're talking about fighting on multiple fronts is ableism, fighting for the disabled. And the disabled are we're the largest community. We're the largest minority in the world. We are black and white and gay and straight and rich and poor and it can happen to any one of us. Even if you are able bodied right now, you can become disabled and an instant, whether you catch a disease or develop a disorder or get hit by a bus, it can happen to any one of us. And the problem with us being active in fighting for our rights is that we can't exactly march, not all of us. We don't have the energy or the ability to march and rally and call our representatives and run for office. So it's very, very difficult for us to fight for what we need. We are having to rely on on others in the progressive movement to help fight for us. And a lot of times we get left behind. The progressive movement needs to remember the disabled when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to accessibility, when it comes to college, you know, all of these things affect us in a way that is just an additional layer. We need healthcare more than anyone else. We need access to education so we can work we can work better jobs and not manual labor because we can't work manual labor. If we get education, then we can move off of social safety nets. All of these things are combined. And like, like you said, all of our grievances are connected. I just would like to remind the progressives that, you know, the disabled do exist and we are, um, we are important and we deserve to have our rights fought for too. So while we're fighting for equality within economics, within feminism, with racial equality, remember your disabled brothers and sisters too. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I particularly appreciate this call from Annie from Alabama. It's a point that needs to be made more often, and frankly, I will come clean as being as big of a part of this problem as anyone. Disability is something that gets talked about very rarely and that becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not only does it not get talked about very much in the first place, but if it is on the agenda, it's one of the first things to get dropped in favor of something else. You know, when when news is breaking and you have to make room, I guarantee Disability is the first thing to go. And, and so my, my personal experience with this is I've had a concept for a disability show on the back burner for untold months. Uh, there's a, an extremely longtime listener, someone who's been with the show since pretty much the very beginning – who herself has a disability and has been in touch with me about making this show and she's been helping gathering, uh, you know, gather material for it. And I just haven't taken the initiative to finally make it happen. And, you know, my best excuse is like everyone else is saying, the news is like drinking from a fire hose right now. Ever since, you know, way before the election, it was just one thing after another after another. And it feels like, oh, well, I have this very limited production schedule. I can barely keep up with the news as it is. Am I really going to take out time and do a show on disability? Well, evidently, the answer is no, but that does not at all mean that that was the correct answer. I mean, am I really saying that there's no time in the in the past, I don't know, eight months or something that I couldn't have squeezed in a show about disability? Of course I could have, but I didn't, and that is evidence To me, through my own experience and now to you, because I'm happy to tell you about it. Not proud to tell you about it, but happy to tell you about it as, as a, you know, uh, educational moment that this is what happens. It it, it just, uh, I, I think it is entirely indicative of how the media as a whole and society as a whole just does not have the conversation about disability that it should. So let it be said now that I will make that episode happen in the near future, guaranteed. Hold me to that. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202 999 3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including
10: And wonder what we're missing